0: Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Angular Insights. We have an extra special session for you today. Our new partner, David Peterson, will be hosting. He previously actually did an insight sessions last year on strategies for bottoms up B2B growth, one of our most watched episodes to date. And David and I are delighted to be joined by Andrew Edelman. He is the head of strategic and platform partnerships at Zapier. He will be leading a chat on product-led partnerships.
2: So excited to have Andrew today. So I'll do a quick intro and then we'll just jump in. There's a ton of great questions that we have here. I want to leave as much time for that as possible. So Andrew is the head of strategic and platform partnerships at Zapier. He's responsible for building and expanding their partnerships with 4,000 plus apps at this point, which is a truly insane number of partnerships. So he has prior experience at Box, Google, and Narrative Science, and he's focused on growing SaaS companies through partnerships. Some personal background, he currently lives in Austin, Texas, but plans to take full advantage of Zapier's remote work culture. We were just talking about where he's thinking about moving next year. So that's really exciting. And I'll just say, as inside, Andrew and I first met when he was at Box years ago. He was kind enough to provide some partnerships advice when we were first getting started on partnerships over at Airtable. And then, as you might imagine, we worked really closely together when he moved to Zapier, given how closely the Airtable and Zapier products are integrated. So it's been really fun for us to get to know each other over multiple career turns. And and now we're working together as I've now moved to my next role here at Angular. Uh, So really excited to have you, Andrew. Thanks for joining.
1: really appreciate it. No, thank you both. Yeah, awesome to have you. So one really interesting thing about this session is that all three of us have actually worked in the partnership space. Andrew, obviously leading partnerships at Zapier and at Box. David led partnerships at Airtable. And I, many, many moons ago, worked on Facebook's product partnerships teams for a while. So we all have like a very unique, interesting perspective on this. So I think a good you know way to set context is just a question for all of us on who are or were we creating partnerships with and towards what? Goal. So I will answer this first. So when I was on Facebook's product partnerships team, I was working on the FB Start program and we were focused on developer partnerships. So we were running a startup program, which was helping developers integrate Facebook products into their mobile apps. So that was the main core, but then we also set up partnerships with top tech companies like Docsend, AWS, etc., to give their tools and services for free or discounted to startups
2: in our program. So that's my partnerships
1: experience. David, what about yours?
2: Yeah, cool. So somewhat similar. So at Airtable, we had three big buckets of partnerships that we thought about. So first was... Product, but technical product partnerships and integrations. So, this is where, like, what Andrew and I worked together on with Zapier, but there were other surface areas of the Airtable product where there were potential integration points. So, we worked with companies like Slack and Atlassian and Salesforce, Salesforce, as well as many others. We also thought a lot about similar to you and kind of like startup programs, global venture partnerships. How do we get Airtable in the hands of as many startups as possible in the world? So we thought about that a lot. And then the last thing is channel partnerships. So this there's maybe a few buckets here. On the one hand, this was like SI, system integrators, large consulting firms. There was also a long tail of agencies and freelancers and you know, experts really similar to Zapier's experts program, which Andrew will talk about. Uh, and then we also had a fair number of technical experts that actually started building on top of Airtable too. There was kind of an emerging platform, but that's still pretty, pretty young at Airtable. So now,
0: Andrew, hand it over to you. Yeah. No, this is such a fun topic to discuss. And really, again, really excited to be here. So as head of strategic and platform partnerships, Zapier, my focus and my team's focus is on creating really great product partnerships and a really great platform for every single SaaS product out there. You mentioned earlier, David, that we have over 4,000 apps. It's growing. Like We will soon be at 5,000, I bet, at the rate we're moving. When I joined a couple of years ago, we were just crossing a 1,000, just to give you some context on how rapidly we wow. grown. So we're really focused that's, on... That's just like two years, something like that, right? Two years, yeah. Wow. We, about, we get, get about 50 to 100 new partners a month that integrate with Zapier. So... We're really building out that base, which is a big focus of ours. Another big focus is on going deeper with our biggest partners, Airtable being a great example, but the kind of goal at the end of the day is really making it so that Zapier's product, which is contingent on integrations to integrate all your tools, can make automation work for everyone. It's really cool to have that seamless connection between our partnership strategy to our product strategy to our ultimate mission as a company.
2: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You're in many ways the perfect person to talk to about these types of partnerships because Zapier is at its essence, this kind of train station of partners. They're so critical, so foundational to the strategy of the company. So it's, it'll be really interesting. Maybe though, we can zoom out a little bit. Just like personally, how'd you get into partnerships?
0: Yeah, I like to joke that I, I got into it by mistake. So I started my career in investment banking of all things. And did so like right when the financial bubble burst in like the oh seven oh eight period. So got to see investment banking implode from the inside. So if you've ever seen the big short, it's very much, I think, my own personal experience. And in going through that, I realized, you know, this is not maybe the place for me. I felt like the black sheep. I want to be closer to innovation to where things are actually improving society, not just bundling up securities and reselling them. So decided to go to business school and while in business school, interned at Google, Realized that tech was absolutely where I needed to go, but really didn't know what to do in tech. It's hard to translate investment banking experience into a specific tech function. A lot of uh, interviews wanted to bucket me to finance. I'm like, I'm not a finance person. And so I was fortunate enough to join Fox in a rotational program and got to experience uh, being a product manager, uh, doing a channel partnership, and then also doing product partnerships. And it was in that experience that I realized that like partnerships was this great, aggregation of the things that I love doing. I love talking to people. I love thinking about product and technology. I like strategizing and formulating like legal documents and financial projections. And partnerships is this great catch-all where we're the cross-functional team connecting our partners to the different groups internally. And it's been a, a great run ever since. And, and how'd you end up at Zapier? Yeah, you had a good pitch earlier about how Zapier being kind of like that central train station connecting all your apps is a great place to be for partnerships. Uh, and I'm sure many people on this call have experienced this, that partnerships often plays a backseat to other priorities in a SaaS business. Uh, and as we'll get into, that may or may not be the right call. And I was fortunate enough during my time at Box uh, to have Aaron Levy just be a huge proponent of partnerships. He always joked like that was the role he wished he had if he wasn't CEO, was running partnerships. He was really involved in what we wow. did. And that made it so that we were elevated, despite the fact that like, Partnerships isn't the product at Vox. It's certainly a big benefit and it's a big differentiation, but that marketplace and that ecosystem was pretty mature given their stage. So I really wanted to find a situation that was similar where partnerships were front and center, but just earlier in stage where we hadn't figured everything out. We still had to build new programs, find new ways to engage our customers. And Zapier was that perfect intersection. And as an added bonus, I got to work remotely, which was something I was looking to do, which in hindsight was a smart call. I joined, I think, two months before COVID hit. So got one company-wide retreat under my belt before we all hunkered down. And then I also wanted to see the SMB side of SaaS and what did the burgeoning product-led growth ecosystem. Box was a very traditional enterprise SaaS motion with a big sales team. Uh, and I really was curious and almost wanted to do like a personal A-B test of what would it be like working in a SaaS company that was product-led growth that did not have sales? And how would that be different?
2: Yeah, that, it's super interesting. We separately have talked a lot about how partnerships can be a part of your growth strategy. And you were uh, kind of coining this term with me, product-led partnerships. So really curious how
0: you define that. I, I joke that we could probably spend the rest of the call answering this question. So I'll do my best not going for another 50 minutes. But yeah, we'll, this will be infused into, I think, all the other questions that we have. And from my perspective, it's really similar to product-led growth. And how that strategy for growing a company is really focused on the product, or as you've now coined, David, like the community to really activate adoption and usage and drive ultimately sales and ARR growth. So I think product-led partnerships is focused on doing basically the exact same thing, but through partnerships. Uh, And so what might be helpful is like taking a step back and thinking about more legacy enterprise software, thinking back to like the IBMs and SAPs and even like the old Microsoft or partnerships was really just another way of saying sales. I and mean, it was very much all about channel. Today, partnerships are focused on so much more than just sales and channel partnerships. Uh, as you described at Airtable, it's about enabling seamless connectivity between mm-hmm. products, ensuring that users can connect all the tools that they use, knowing that today, most enterprises on average are using hundreds of apps. And those products need to work together. And there need to be APIs behind that to make those products work. You also need to make sure, similar to the product-led growth motion, that for partners that you're working with, there's as little friction as possible. And so one of the things we've done at Zapier is make it super easy for partners to get started, very much like we make it very easy for an end user to sign up for a trial and get started. There's no cost to integrating with Zapier. There's no friction to developing your integration. It typically takes one to two weeks. We want to get that flywheel turning for partners just as fast as we're turning for end users. And I think lastly, like structurally how partnership organizations are built today and how they're measured and how they hire has fundamentally changed. Previously, the types of partnerships like we talked earlier at Legacy Enterprise was focused on like resellers and referrals and SIs. Today, there's really a big focus on like the product experience. Like how will my app work with this other app? From a goal perspective, legacy goals were focused on distribution and sales, whereas today it's about focusing on uh, usage or signups or retention. And then from an organizational structure, traditionally, partnership sits in sales. It reports to the CRO. But my own experience at Vox, we sat in product. We reported to our chief product officer. And now at Zapier, we actually sit in marketing and report to our CMO. And then similarly, from like a hiring perspective, uh, very traditional channel sales teams are hiring former account executives, uh, whereas when I'm hiring for partner managers today, I'm looking for a customer success manager, a sales engineer, or PM folks that have a real product uh, knowledge that they can bring into those conversations. And then, really interestingly, when we're engaging our partners, we really want to talk to PMs. And so our joke internally is, if we're talking to someone in BD or someone in sales we're probably not doing our jobs because we ultimately want to get to the product decision makers within our partners.
1: To dig into that a little bit more, you've now been in partnerships for a long time. And how have you seen partnership strategies evolve over that time? For example, with enterprise or product-led growth or partnerships-led growth? Curious to see how it's evolved during your tenure.
0: At Zapier, it's evolved in a couple of different ways. I think I mentioned earlier about the breadth that we have, the fact that we now have 4,000 partners. We're equally focused now on the depth, ensuring that those bigger integrations, those bigger partners that we work with, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, we really have the best possible experience. We'll also get into this a bit earlier around the difference between a partnership and a platform. We very much are a platform. And so we're investing heavily in the tools and technologies that our partners need, to build and maintain their integrations. And then really interestingly, uh, just given we had an announcement yesterday around this, ensuring that our partners can also embed aspects of Zapier into their own products uh, so that users who are visiting Google ads or Facebook ads can discover and learn about the benefits of Zapier and automation from within those products without having to go and do a Google search and find our SEO optimized link and then click it and then sign up. Like It's a pretty long user funnel, So that optimization of user funnels, uh, that focus on depth, I think has really evolved quite a bit.
1: Awesome. And so can you talk a little bit more about what Zapier's current partnership strategy is like?
0: Yeah, definitely. It, It will sound pretty familiar to David, given a lot of similarities with Airtable. We have basically four pillars to our strategy, two of which I think will be really familiar to those in attendance or those listening, two of which may be a little bit less common, but I think hold a really important role to our success. Uh, so the first one is what I run. It's the platform partnership team and strategic alliances. This is all about integrating and embedding with everyone possible in SaaS. And so we work with everyone from Salesforce and Slack to HubSpot and MailChimp. Again, you name it, we're working closely with them and really trying to figure out how do we enable our products to work better together? And how do we enable uh, the value of those two solutions together to be better than standalone? We also have a, a channel team which is a bit of a misnomer. It's not your traditional sales-focused channel team. It's really our Zapier Experts program, which is an ecosystem of agencies and freelancers who are just the most power users possible of Zapier and who have built entire businesses around helping other small businesses get started with and adopt Zapier. The two other pillars are the ones that I really want to call out because I think they're often overlooked but equally important, if not uh, more so, One is our partner operations team. We talked about this earlier that we have over 4,000 partners in our ecosystem. Managing that and scaling that is not easy. It requires a lot of backend operations to scale that and to be really efficient as possible. So we're really fortunate to have actually three people in partner operations that kind of make it all work. And so they're Zapier experts themselves. They're the wizards behind the scene, making everything work uh, and just allowing us to continue to scale our programs. Similarly, we have partner marketing that actually sits in partnerships, which allows us to scalably reach out to our partners directly and make sure they know about the new things that we're launching, the new ways they can take advantage of our program, the benefits that they have access to, uh, and really ensuring that they're capitalizing on all that infrastructure that we're putting in place.
2: One thing that comes to mind is with a product like Zapier and similar, I think, with a product like Airtable when I was over there, the expert ecosystem, the long tail of freelancers and agencies, I I think it's more important than any of us realize, even though we both realize how important it is. Like It's undervalued still. At least that's what I would say from my experience. Like They provided so much long tail value that was hard for us to even quantify. So I'm curious, how do you think about the value of experts? Are there KPIs you think about there? What advice would you give to folks about building their own ecosystem and if they even should build their own ecosystem like do they have a product where it's worth the effort and time to do so so there were a few questions in there but uh curious thoughts
0: no we're so fortunate to have an expert leader internally my colleague emily brunger that just lives and breathes this ecosystem and you're absolutely right david that is often an overlooked category I like to think of our experts a lot like the traditional SIs in the enterprise space. And and we had this at Box where we worked with the Deloitte's and Accenture's and PwC's, the big GSIs, as well as these regional SIs. But this kind of like long tail, as you called it, or like bottom of the pyramid experts, that's honestly where it's at because this is their only focus. Uh, And so I think you and I both know a lot of the same experts who have built entire businesses and careers around the Airtable, Webflow, Zapier stack around automation and workflow. So when we hear stories about experts, um, like one of them in mind, Andy, who had this as a side hustle. He had a regular job and he was on the side building zaps for people. He quit his job this year and is all in on being a Zapier expert. And if you go to zapier.com experts, you'll see our entire uh, kind of list of, I think we have 60 experts today. I think he's got over 200 reviews. And we've only had the ability to write reviews like for six months, I wanna say. And so the fact that 200 people took the time to go in there, and they're all pretty much five-star reviews, speaks to the fact that these individuals bring something unique that, again, the traditional SIs can't because they're such large organizations, have so many competing priorities. And unless you're GCP, Azure, AWS, or Salesforce, one of those massive platforms, it's really hard to get their attention. So for us, the expert ecosystem is still very new. Uh, we just reopened the program for applications. I think we got like thousands of new applications. And so similar to that comment earlier around the partner operations, having the right infrastructure in place so that we can effectively scale this is really crucial and critical to success. Uh, but for right now, what we're looking at for that experts team and what Emily and Greg and Scott on that team are running is really trying to ensure that as many Zapier customers as possible can get the help and the support they need to get started knowing that when an expert is involved, that user is likely to get started on Zapier faster, is likely to upgrade more quickly, and is ultimately more likely to be a retentive customer that is happy with the result and the outcome uh, because they had an expert in their corner uh, helping them get started. Uh, It's very similar to that adoption curve. We're a 10-year-old company at this point. We're getting into that kind of early majority, late majority phase. And for a lot of those users, they're not overtly technical. Um, And even something as simple as Zapier still does require some Knowledge and understanding, and frankly, creativity to figure out like, well, which apps do I want to connect for which use case? And these experts are just the best out there, at coming in and identifying exactly where you can automate something, what efficiencies you can gain from it, and they just do some things that we we can't possibly do with our even 100 person customer support team.
2: Yeah, the, it totally makes sense. I'm sold on it too. But hopefully, that's useful for some folks listening in. You mentioned before this idea of a uh, platform, like Zapier is building, it's not just a partnership strategy, it's a platform strategy too. So I I think people often conflate the two, don't understand the difference. Curious, when do you think a startup should evolve from working with partners, maybe in a one-off way or through direct integrations, into building an actual platform? But how should they make that decision?
0: It's such a great question and such a difficult one, honestly. I think you said it well, that like everyone should be thinking about partnerships and we'll get into specifically like when you should be thinking about it and depending on your business model, how it might fit. But doing partnerships makes sense for pretty much every startup in SaaS. Platforms are a different story. They're a lot harder to pull off and they're frankly not for everyone. I like to think of it as like a crawl, walk, run strategy where you're initially doing like your first partnership and you're realizing that, hey, my customer base, let's say really relies on Salesforce. You have to go figure out how are we going to integrate with Salesforce? How are we going to partner with them? They have a structured program for you to go through, and you'll kind of go through it. As you grow and scale, you might realize that, hey, you know what? Other CRMs are going to be important. We might go talk to like a HubSpot or go talk to a Copper. That's the, the point where you're going to start thinking about if the demand starts coming in, we're going to need dozens or hundreds of these integrations. How do we go solve that? Um, and one of the great examples that doesn't often come to mind, but I feel like is a really good one is Intercom. Intercom plays in a very specific space and they have a very specific solution. But what I think they realized was that there are specific ways that their tool needs to integrate with all these other kind of surrounding tools in that customer support stack. And there wasn't possibly any way they could go build all those integrations themselves. And so they built a platform. I think they launched their program earlier this year or late last year. And it's very tailored to what their user needs, which is the ability for intercom to connect to all the other apps that they use inside a little intercom chat window. And so you can have like a Calendly link unfurl in there and do all these great things. Slack is another kind of classic example of a partnership turned into a platform. They also realized after building probably the first 50 or so integrations that, hey, this is going to be a huge part of our strategy. We can't possibly keep up and build all this ourselves. We're going to need a platform where partners can come to us build their integration, benefit from our ecosystem, take advantage of co-marketing and other perks, and then kind of go on their way. Similarly with us, this is a huge part of our strategy. And I think this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced that our platform takes two forms. We have a platform, just like Slaps, where you can come in and build an integration with Zapier and publish that to our user all on your own through our developer platform. But we also have tools and components that you can embed into your application so that Parts of Zapier can exist in your app. And that's the platform that looks a lot more like a Stripe or a Twilio, where it's, you know, invisible to the end user, but still really beneficial and helpful. So we could spend a lot more time talking about platforms. I agree there's no like clean definition, but there definitely is a distinction between a platform and a partnership.
1: Because so many of our listeners are early stage startup founders, pre-seed, seed, et cetera. It's obviously much It's a much different challenge building up a partnership strategy when you're an early stage startup founder versus when you're at Zapier. But do you have any recommendations for how startup founders um, should think about building a partnership strategy?
0: Yeah, this, this is one of the things I enjoy talking to startups most about because it's just unique for every company. The place where I typically always start is talking to your end customers. Go spend time with your users and understand where there are gaps, gaps in acquiring the product and purchasing it, gaps in like using the product and kind of knowing what to do with it, or gaps in kind of connecting it to the other tools that they're using. I think from there, you'll recognize where partnerships can help fill those gaps. We'll also talk a thing a little bit later about the build by partner decision-making process. Uh, And that's also something that can educate where you build new product or where you you acquire new technology or new people. So just as like, hopefully a lot of these companies in your portfolio are focused on their user and really customer centric as part of their own PLG strategy or approach, I think you can be similarly focused and kind of centered on the user when it comes to partnerships. And one thing that might be helpful is like just a very simple framework when thinking about different types of partnerships Uh, that we used when I was at Fox. Basically, the way I think about this is on a two-by-two and thinking about this as, are you trying to drive differentiation in your product and really fill a product gap and drive usage or monthly active users? Or are you trying to fill a distribution gap and try to get more reach and really just drive pure ARR growth? And so from that, you can form these really generic buckets. And again, it'll look different for every startup. Uh, This is how we looked at this at Fox. You could apply this to Zapier as well, but from a platform partnership or product partnership or technology partnership standpoint, it's about those integrations. It's about ensuring that your product is differentiated. It works better than your competitor because it'll work with other products that your customers are using. And so for for those products that are super differentiating, that will make your product stand out in the marketplace, that's when you should be building native integrations. And that's when you should be going direct and saying, like, we are going to make this the best experience possible because all of our users spend all of their time in Slack. We need to meet them where they are and have a beautiful Slack experience or a Slack bot. Conversely, there will be a long tail. There will be a set of applications that, yeah, you should integrate with, but maybe aren't top of mind or as, an, as crucial or as important. That's where you can hire a third-party developer. You can outsource it to SIs. That's where you can integrate with Zapier because we have 4,000 apps. There's a lot of different ways that you can solve that. From a distribution standpoint, this is traditionally what's called channel partnerships. This is focused on resellers, referral partnerships, the service partnerships. I was fortunate enough to work and launch Fox's partnership with IBM, which is really a combination of both of these. This is what we call strategic alliances. You can think of these like really big bets that you're making with really large partners. And so in a case of Box, we were building product with IBM. We built a product called Relay, which was like a content-based workflow engine, which is all about driving differentiation and usage. And then IBM was just a great resale partner. They sold Box to their customers for us. And so it drove a lot of distribution. And so when you find those kind of like rare opportunities to get both from a single partner, that's when you might have a dedicated team. In the case of Box, we had a, a whole business unit specifically dedicated to our IBM partnership. Well, you can really drive just a lot of focus and and energy.
1: Very cool. So you talked a little bit about how to actually build out your partnerships. But we got a great question from Leon, who is the CEO of Curiosity based in Germany. And he would like to know a little bit more about when should you actually go about uh, starting to build partnerships for an early
0: stage startup? I'll I'll give the standard like non-answer, which is it depends. It depends on your product. It depends on your stage. It depends on your strategy. Realistically speaking, partnerships is probably not one of your first, call it five to 10 hires. Unless, and this is kind of like the, the but, unless it's like absolutely critical to your product and to your success. And so a great example of that, Christina Cordova, who used to run partnerships at Stripe and then Notion. Uh, she was just talking last week uh, about how at Stripe, when they got started, they needed banking partnerships. They needed a partner early on to help process the payments that they were doing online. And so she was actually brought on as one of the first employees to solve this. And of all partners that you can imagine, they worked with Wells Fargo, I think, as their first banking partnership. But it was essential to their strategy. She was my partner contact when I was at Facebook when we create our partnership. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's incredible what she does and, and brings such a rich experience. And so I think The reality is most companies probably don't have this. And so I think what's important as a founder is to, again, stay in touch with your product team, with your marketing team, and stay in tune with where those gaps are starting to create. And maybe on the product side where there's a real demand for the tool to have a feature or to work with another app that you just can't quite answer in an RFP process or during a sales cycle, that's when you might have that opportunity to go form a partnership, build out a team, Similarly, on the marketing or sales side, if you're realizing that growth is stagnating or a lot of your um, target customers choose to buy through third parties and like to work with SIs, that's when there's going to obviously be a need. So there's never like a perfect time and there's never like a a one size fits all answer. It'll very much depend. And Leon, if you're listening, would love to chat with you about curiosity and, and hear exactly where you're at.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And to stay on that like early stage startup lens for a bit, we got another great question from John Mushriki, who's the CEO of InRange based in London. And he's asking, what do you focus on or should you focus on in your first five partnerships when I'm assuming things are really make or break?
0: Yeah, this is a really great question. And similarly tough. I'll try to give like three pieces of advice here. First is is don't go too big. I think and often commonly pitfall that a lot of folks run into is try to do a really big partnership with their first partnership and go straight to someone like a Google or Facebook and say, like, hey, we're going to go to the top and make it big. It's often going to sink the company and it's often going to use up too many resources and just leave a bad taste in leadership that partnerships are difficult. They don't work. They have a high rate of failure. Um, Put it another way, like it's easier to start out by just getting a win on the board and like hit a single to prove out the process, to build out the muscle uh, and show that there's like value in partnerships. Uh, because again, in many SaaS companies, partnerships plays this backseat role and isn't the primary way through which um, companies are, are operating. So don't go too big up front, but at the same time, like find the right balance. You, you don't want to go too small and work with startup much smaller than you that you know, is still trying to find product market fit themselves. And you're both kind of feeling each other out and don't have that experience. Uh, So don't be afraid to punch above your weight. Uh, This is something that Box did for years. We were constantly in the news and being talked about because we were announcing partnerships with Salesforce when they were much smaller and Slack when they were early on, knowing that you can attach yourself to those slightly bigger names that have a little bit more attention uh, and get some of that on yourself. So finding a company that's a little bit bigger than you that fills a unique gap, I think, is a really important way to get that early impact and not just go small and find that early traction. And then lastly is really being focused on and knowing your goals and what metrics matter to you as a company uh, from a partnership perspective. Uh, having a really clear understanding of like the purpose of those partnerships, whether it's more sales, more usage, uh, increased retention, and then driving those partnership efforts towards those goals so that those first five are really aligned to something that matters to the company. And again, can show the progress uh, and impact to those metrics.
1: Very cool. So what would you say, and this is a question we got from Sophie from Digital Catapult based in London. And she's asking, what is the most important consideration for a successful partnership that delivers value on both sides? What do you say?
0: Yeah, the answer might surprise you. And I'll share a quick anecdote first for sharing the answer. Before COVID, when like people were back in classrooms, I was in my kindergartner's class doing like a, a show and tell, like, what does your parent do for work? Uh, this was in the Bay Area. So I felt like everyone was like an entrepreneur or a founder or a PM. And I was in there talking about partnerships. And so I think it was my son who asked, like, what is partnerships? And so the best analogy I could think of was like, I help Fox, where I was working at the time, make friends with other companies. Like, that's what we do. We make friends. And really wisely, a student in the class asked like, well, who's your best friend? And I happened to have my laptop in front of me with all these stickers of the partners we worked with. And the answer came to me instantly. I knew who it was, Okta. Like, Okta was our best friend when it came to partnerships. And I think it really speaks to uh, your question, which is, I think it was transparency and culture as like the most important things for a partnership. I think often it's overlooked and it's not one of the key KPIs that's written in a, a memo when you're evaluating a partnership but it really plays an important role when you're spending a lot of time with another company and your people are spending a lot of time with one another if there's not transparency up front and you're not each being very clear on your goals and your strategy and what you want from it you're going to be constantly second guessing each other and trying to figure it out in the background and now just create a culture that's you know toxic or doesn't work well another great example is when we first struck the partnership with IBM this was a very different partnership for box IBM was not the high-flying SaaS darlings like Slack and Salesforce and ServiceNow and Workday and Adobe. They were different. They were legacy. And this was very much focused on sales. Um, and so I remember the first time the IBM team came to Box headquarters for a meeting, they all showed up in suit ties because they were coming in from Armonk, New York. And that's just the IBM way. And we had forgotten to tell them, like, you're coming to Box, Redwood City, California. We're a casual culture. We're new tech. Leave the suits and ties at home, and so that became a really clear thing that we had to start putting in meeting invites for future meetings, just to like again set the stage of like this is our culture. Uh, and what we actually found ultimately was a lot of champions within IBM who wanted to be a part of that culture and really champion the partnership because they could see and feel like how we did things, how we worked, and we're, really wanted to be a part of it. So transparency and culture, I think, are really critical.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I wonder if uh, they're still wearing suit and ties uh, over there. When I first started at Goldman, I was working primarily with the tech division. And it's been interesting to see that, that transition from like we wore business clothes and now it's kind of just like whatever goes. They're just trying to get people to go back into the office. So it's, if it's casual, it's casual. So you touched a little bit about KPIs earlier. I'm kind of curious about for you specifically with your job. What are the KPIs that you care about? What are you looking at? How do you know that your strategy is working?
0: Yeah, really great question, Anne. So it's pretty similar for me now at Zapier and when I was at Box because both companies had really huge ecosystems. So some of these KPIs may differ from a startup, which is just one caveat I want to make up front. But really like three general areas that I'm thinking about and my team is thinking about are the breadth and scale of our ecosystem. How many new apps are we getting on the platform? How quickly are they able to come onto the platform? And how quickly are they able to get to that moment where they have a user leveraging that integration and seeing the value of their app on our ecosystem? Second is around usage and revenue of every app. So we spend time or our partners spend time building these integrations, launching these integrations, publicizing these integrations. But does anyone come? So like, if you build it, will they come? Like, we hope they do. And so we spent a long time tracking, like, how does that perform? What does that look like? Are we seeing adoption of these integrations? Are we seeing revenue flow in as a result of them? One way we looked at this at Box, which might be helpful for other startups is this idea of like influenced ARR. Our account executives at Box actually tracked whether or not a deal was influenced by a partner. So is the fact that we had an integration with, Uh, Google Docs or Salesforce or Microsoft helpful to that customer like winning that business uh, and signing with Fox. And if so, we would track that. And so it wasn't direct revenue that we could attribute to like, hey, this partner brought in this deal and sold it for us. They might not have been involved, but as a way of tracking like the general influence. So it's a bit of a squishy metric The last one is specifically at Zapier is adoption of these embedding tools. Uh, So that's a big focus for us. And again, we had a, a big announcement yesterday. Of a bunch of new elements, as we call them, ways for partners to embed Zapier. And so we're looking at adoption of those tools and those technologies and then resulting signups. How often can a user find Zapier in another partner's product, sign up for Zapier and get started with it? That's obviously a huge flywheel that we'd love to do more of.
1: Very cool. Yeah, it's somewhat similar. When I was at Facebook, the, the main KPIs we looked at were uh, product adoption. So, for example, like Facebook login, how many startups? that were a part of our program were adopting that and using it. And what was the lift, right? That we could attribute to to being in the program and also NPS, right? So that was something that Mm -hmm. that we cared a lot about. Cool. So up next, we have Joshua
0: joining us. Thanks so much for doing this. So I'm a senior product manager at a company called Edgecast. So I'm in charge of bringing on product partnerships. And I wanted to ask how you go about vetting your partners to make sure that they're going to deliver value to your customers, because if you, you know, bring them into your marketplace and you recommend them to customers, there's the potential for reputational damage and losing out on a larger relationship if, if they underperform. So kind of what is your process for working with them to ensure that they will deliver value? Yeah, it's a really great question, Joshua. And, and certainly it's something that it sounds like happens as you continue to scale an ecosystem, and bring on a lot of new partners. Hopefully those first early ones are obvious and they're ones that are like well-established and will kind of have the least reputational risk. But certainly as it grows and you start getting into those partners that you may not have heard of before, you start asking those questions. So a couple of different things that I've seen work well at Zapier, at Fox, other companies I think like Atlassian do this really well, is having some form of uh, check in the process. What you don't want to have is an such an open ecosystem and such an open API that anyone out there can create a developer account, build an integration and like publish it immediately for users to use. There needs to be some sort of trust in that system. And so one of the things that you can institute is having internal teams do a check and like actually go into the integration or the app and see how does it look? Does it meet our requirements? Does it meet our standards? Are they violating any you know platform terms of services by... You know, leveraging our brand in ways that aren't permitted the challenges as we've talked about a bit in this call is that that requires more scale that requires more people so there are certainly ways to build automations to help with that you can do like an automated code review for example or you could have someone just do a quick demo and provide it to you directly so that you're not doing that legwork of logging into their product and clicking around to see how it works so that's like my initial advice but a really great question joshua
1: so up next, we're going to be joined by Mariam Hak- Hakobian. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, she's the co-founder and CEO of Softer, and she is based in Berlin. Hey, everyone. First of all, glad to be really uh, awesome to be here, and thanks for doing this. My question is about the second type of partnership, which is the startup and venture partners program. So I'm really curious to understand how big of a growth driver this has been for Zapier specifically. We'd love also to understand for a- a- Airtable, <laughs> because I know Airtable also has been doing this. And how do you really measure success of these type of partnerships? Is it really conversion or what, what specifically is that? Thank you.
0: Yeah, great to see you, Miriam, and glad you could join. This actually might be a better question for David, so I, for once, might not have to answer one. We don't have this at Zapier, but something that we get asked quite often is something that I really wish we were doing, like a Zapier for startups equivalent, but it's on our to-do list, and and now it is something we've launched, but David, I know you and I have chatted quite a bit about the success you had at Airtable.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I tried to convince you to do it at Zapier, but I was unsuccessful back when I was at Airtable. But yeah, Miriam, I can give you some high-level point of view from Airtable and also from a lot of, you know, conversations I've had with other folks who lead these programs at companies like ranging from HubSpot and larger companies like that and a lot of smaller startups as well. So I I think that these programs can be very very powerful drivers of growth, but you need to think about a few things. One is ask yourself honestly if Startups are a good target market for you or not. Like, is that actually a place that you want to play? It's not necessarily the case. Another thing that I would ask yourself is, is there value in you as a product kind of getting there first? Is there value in you being a product that was adopted when a company is only 10 people versus it could be that it's actually better for you to come in a little bit later when some processes are more well-established And yeah, so I think those are the two big things that I would think about to start. You know, for Airtable, both of those things were true. It benefited us to target startups and to get in as early as we possibly could. Uh, So we, we thought it was worth investing in. The other things I would think about are, you know, one, how do you actually structure the program? What is the incentive? Are you giving credit? Are you giving free... Months away? Are you giving free trials? Like there's so many different ways to structure it. So you just want to think about think about how much you want to give away, what actually makes sense. The other thing that I would say is depending on the product, you can either look at the startup program as something that truly is going to drive revenue, or you can look at it as a way to acquire companies that eventually you might make money on, but it'll take years. So as an example, there are some programs where The road to monetization is actually quite short or it's pretty predictable. A program like Stripe or something. If Stripe gets you on board, you're probably not going to rip Stripe out. And they know that they are going to make money as a percentage of every dollar that goes through every dollar of GMP that goes through your marketplace. So for them, they just want to get you on board and then they'll be able to scale up and they're going to start seeing revenue relatively quickly. Whereas a product like um, a a seat-based product, you might actually not see revenue for a long time because it takes a while for startups to hire a lot more people and get a lot more seats. So then you need to be okay with the fact that you might not see revenue in the near term but uh, you can convince yourself, perhaps, that the program is worthwhile by looking at the activation rates of startup users versus your average users, or the product sophistication of your startup users versus average users as well. So just some high-level thoughts. Happy to dig into this a- another time. And Andrew, if you have any additional uh, thoughts from your experience, I- I'd be curious as well.
0: Yeah, I think what I was going to add, David, is like the reason why we haven't done this at Zapier is connected to what you were saying, that Our sweet spot is those startups, those small businesses, those solopreneurs, they're just getting started and want to have more capacity to do the work that they care about and that's meaningful to them by automating the busy work. And so I think the reason why we've had pushback internally to like launch something like this is, do we need to give it away? Like we have a free trial for 14 days. We have a free version of Zapier they can use like ongoing without paying at all. And so attracting that Persona that a, another startup ecosystem can bring in or a VC can bring in is already who we're targeting and who we naturally get on the platform. So that's been the pushback internally and they right. have some overlaps, Miriam, with your own product.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. There's serious risk of cannibalization if you aren't careful, if your product doesn't move significantly upmarket over time.
1: And one thing just to add to that is because, you know, at Facebook, we had something similar where we had partnerships with VCs and with accelerators, where we would fast track the applications at the startup they refer to us with a referral code. We also were working with a bunch of companies to give their tools and services for free to our startups. And at Angular, I've set up something similar where we're working with the 30 top tech companies to give their, their credits to our startups. And one thing that I would recommend for any company that's thinking about doing this is to not have it just be purely transactional. We have some partners where that's all, it's like they're like, here's a code here's $50,000 in credits. Goodbye, right? Good luck. But what I've found is that the partnerships that are most successful in the space are the ones that are truly collaborative and are are much more than just the credits, right? They're co-marketing, right? Maybe they want to feature some startups in their marketing initiatives, do events together, et cetera. There's really like more opportunities to partner. I, I often see the initial credit as just like, the foothold into deepening a partnership, right? And just the first step to truly having a good partnership. So that, that's just what I would recommend is, is having, making sure it's not fairly transactional. And with that, I actually had a question that you had alluded to before, Andrew. It comes from Craig Calderon. He's the co-founder of Within Health based in New York. And he was asking, how do you go about the build by partner decision?
0: Yeah, it's the age-old question and also a very hard one. I think similar to one of the earlier questions, like there's no one size fits all here. It'll depend on your product strategy and just your appetite for doing some of those more non-traditional things like inorganic growth through acquisition. I think one of the biggest misnomers though about like build by partner is that it's an or rather than an and, uh, meaning that these often actually go hand in hand. Uh, So two quick examples is I think you can buy something to support something that's being built to accelerate an effort that's already happening. These are often you know, called like tuck-in acquisitions where you're acquiring a team or their talent um, or their IP to like accelerate your roadmap. And like you got the nucleus of an idea starting, but you're realizing, hey, this is gonna take a lot more effort. And we wanna like, accelerate that through acquisition rather than just like buying a net new product and just diversifying your revenue streams that way. The other example is often you can start with a partnership. Uh, you can partner with a company that you find interesting. And you can figure out whether it's worthwhile to buy in the future, uh, because hopefully through that partnership, or in some cases, many SaaS companies have investment ve- vehicles like Slack Fund, um, where you can invest in startups and actually get an insider look at like, how the company operates, how they're growing, what their metrics look like, what type of scale they're having, and then realize that, oh, like this would be a really valuable company to bring in and match some of the things we're doing. A great example of that one is Slack had invested in a company called Missions, and Missions had built like a Slack-based workflow product where very easily you could build a Slack-oriented and Slack-centric workflow on Slack. They acquired that company, and that ultimately became Slack Workflow Builder, which is effectively the same tool, but Slack branded. And so that initial investment, I think, gave them a real way to like look into the company, uh, see how it's doing, and it's something that I'm seeing a lot more often. Uh, HubSpot just announced another big fund of their own to do something similar. So, yeah, it's becoming a another part of this. Is like buy, build, partner, invest uh, might be like the the fourth pillar.
2: Yeah, I feel like we see some we're seeing something similar now with even companies like Stripe. Let's say that are investing in fintech players that are using Stripe right, in, in their product, which is a little bit different, it's more of a platform play versus direct partner play, but also really interesting. A tactical question for you. I'm thinking a lot about that framework you shared before, which is is super useful. And thinking about the difference between building the native integration or relying on third parties. So I think I understand your point on when to build native versus when to rely on third parties. More of a tactical question on how do you just prioritize which integrations to build overall?
0: Yeah, hopefully you're able to do this with data. The best possible data that you can provide your product team when it comes to prioritizing integrations is customer data, understanding those requests that come in. Something that I remember Facebook Workplace, their social enterprise tool when it launched, that I thought they did really brilliantly was they sent out a survey to all of their users, all of their partners, prospective customers, and just ask them, what tools do you use? And from that, I think they were able to gauge like where to invest and where to spend time. Uh, And something that, again, they've done very well is rather than have this massive ecosystem of hundreds or thousands of applications, is they've really focused in on like 50 to 100, like high quality, really well done integrations, knowing that those are likely the kind of 80, 20 rule partners that will matter most to the most customers uh, and are therefore worth spending the most time on. The other way you can do this is looking at product usage or product requests and customer success feedback. So if you have a really strong internal feedback loop where customers can provide feedback they're like, Hey, this part of your product doesn't work well. You might be able to identify that like, Hey, maybe analytics isn't something we do well, and we really need to beef that up by partnering with someone first, maybe acquiring someone next uh, to the previous question to really ensure that like that experience of our product meets our customers' expectations. So spend time with your customer success team, spend time with your sales team if you have one. Uh, They're the ones talking to customers and I think we'll have the best point of view on which things to prioritize. Another really easy way to do it is, you know, by applying like ARR filters or applications to this. If you are planning to go up market or know that enterprise customers are your biggest champions, listen to them first. This is certainly what we did at Box. I remember one of our largest, you know, Fortune 10 customers was like, you need to work with Microsoft more deeply. And we were like, great, we'll do it. We found that was a very hard thing to do. So we actually used the, that same customer to go to Microsoft and say, hey, they really want this. They're one of your biggest customers. They're one of our biggest customers. Can't we just make this work? It took some cajoling and I think we finally made it happen. But certainly the the larger the customer, the more influence they'll have, I'll be Honest, like this is a risk if you're a little bit more S and B oriented, because if you have that one big customer that's like kind of promising you, "Hey, we'll be your first kind of upmarket sale," but we need you to do X, Y, Z, that can be a distraction. And so that's kind of a warning to startups out there that aren't yet upmarket that the kind of the the carrot be dangling by those bigger uh, companies may distract you and may lead you to build an integration that they specifically want, but may not be applicable to your wider customer base.
2: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I I know that we're running short on time. So I want to make sure we have a chance to chat about like a little bit more detail on the product-led partnerships angle that we we were discussing at the beginning. So maybe just a kind of a broad question, which is, how do you think about connecting your partnership strategy to a product-led growth motion? So that could be at a place like Zapier where partnerships are kind of core to the motion, core to the product itself. But I, I would also be curious for your thoughts on some classic PLG, like vertical SaaS PLG company that comes to mind, at, I don't know, like DocuSign or something. How would you think about partnerships as part of their product-led growth strategy
0: as well? Yes, it's such a great question. Uh, and one that like, I spent a lot of time thinking about because you know, as you pointed out, like, Zapper is very much a product-led growth company and there are now so many more out there. Coda, I think, is another great one that comes to mind that um, is doing a great job with their ecosystem. I'm only biased because their new head of partnerships used to work uh, for me at Zapier, but Nick Mallory has been doing a great job with their ecosystem in, in a really short period. So there are probably too many examples to name thinking about how we did this at Zapier or how we did this at Vox. I think some of the very you know, similar things that I see is spending time with your product team and spending time with your partner's product teams. I think there's this bias very often that like partnerships has to happen, partnership person to partnership person, and you're negotiating terms and you're thinking about co-selling and reselling and co-marketing, but fundamentally for it to fit into that PLG motion, it has to fit into the product and it has to make sense to the user. And so I think to all the partner managers out there, spend time with your product team, spend time with your engineering team, spend time with your customer success managers and really hear what they're hearing from the customers and where they're seeing the friction and the different gaps that uniquely partnerships can fill. Because uh, I think without that point of view, it may not be product-led. It might be something, again, more led from the promise of a large reseller deal or distribution mm-hmm. play. Really focusing on like the product piece, I think, is the best place to start.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I know we're running up on time here. This was such a great session. Really enjoyed learning all about partnerships and Product-led partnerships in particular, we're going to coin this term if it kills us. So Andrew, thanks so much. And I'll hand it over to Anne.
1: Yeah. So thank you everyone for joining, Andrew. Thank you. Great session. I feel like this just flew by. So in three weeks, we will actually have a conversation with David Peterson. He'll be talking about joining Angular Ventures as our new partner and also on how the future of enterprise will be customer built. And then our last session of the year will be Leah Moore, who leads marketing at Sneak. So definitely hope to see you all there. Thank you so much for joining and have a great rest of your day.